You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. So we are joined by Lisa Levine at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine to discuss her oral plenary session one presentation, oral presentation number five, entitled Foley or Mesoprostol for the Management of Induction, the 4-MAMI trial, a forearm randomized clinical trial. I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Remind me, you were with the University of Pennsylvania? Yes. Yes, awesome. So we really enjoyed seeing your presentation this morning. And I know the audience, as well as our audience, is going to be very interested to hear a little more about the result and what led to this. I think you stipulated this morning that one of the background items here is we really don't know what is the best way to induce a mother's cervix to achieve a vaginal delivery. And this led to this work. Correct. There certainly have been a number of trials looking at induction methods, cervical ripening methods, to see which ones have improved outcomes, faster time to delivery, lower cesarean delivery rates. But there have been very few that have looked at multiple agents in one study. And that's what lends to the difficulty of us actually truly comparing the differences within different studies. So one of the things you did, you looked at four different arms in this study, and you used both arms that involved mechanical as well as pharmacologic ripening methods, and then used them together as well. So describe your study design a little bit for the listener. Sure. So this was a four-armed randomized trial that looked at mesoprostol alone, cervical foley with mesoprostol concurrently, cervical foley alone, and cervical foley with oxytocin concurrently. They all had their own standardized induction regimens for each arm, and then once they achieved active labor, they all had a standardized active labor protocol that was the same across the four groups. Once you started this protocol, you had a very large population that was approached for inclusion. Tell us a little bit about the clinical population that you were working with in this case. We're in West Philadelphia, so it's an urban population. There are a lot of high-risk deliveries um, and high-risk patient populations that are referred in. The major exclusion criteria that I think precluded most of the women from being in the study was the fact that we wanted them to have a Bishop score less than or equal to 6 and, not or, and a cervical dilation less than or equal to 2. And many of them came in their Bishop score would be 7 or potentially they were 2.5 centimeters dilated and I think that was probably the main exclusion criteria. That and or they were contracting too much to be able to get a mesoprostol. So upon randomization of these women, they then had a standardized protocol, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And when the woman was randomized to her specific protocol, she was analyzed in an intent-to-treat fashion for this? Correct. Okay. And what were your findings amongst the different arms, the different randomization arms? Among the four arms, combination methods had a faster time to delivery overall. This was true for both nulliparous and multiparous women. They also had a faster time to vaginal delivery, the combination methods, when compared to the single agent methods. And there were no differences in cesarean delivery rates among the group. I think that's a very important outcome that a lot of people were paying attention to was the combination of both mechanical and pharmacologic induction did not increase the rates of cesarean delivery and thus 
would also be kind of maybe a surrogate for safety in this case as well. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we, we definitely were not powered to look at cesarean delivery. If you look at our overall rates, in order to truly see a difference in cesarean delivery, we would have needed more than 800 women in each group. But when you look at the maternal morbidity as well as the neonatal morbidity, again, things that we were not powered to, but you can certainly see trends in the numbers, and it really does appear that the maternal morbidity and neonatal morbidity was low for the combination method groups. So your presentation clearly speaks to not only the maternal fetal medicine audience, but also the delivering obstetrician, the laborist population, where oftentimes the laborist is faced with induction of an unfavorable cervix. So I think it has a lot of power to potentially change practice for them. But I was very interested as well in your presentation. You also kind of addressed the patient, and you looked at what is the benefit for the patient who is coming in, and what did you find there? We didn't do any official patient satisfaction survey. Mm -hmm. However, we did end up getting a lot of feedback from patients Mm -hmm. that we were not soliciting for. And it seems like the correlation between patient satisfaction is higher the faster you get delivered. But certainly the other implications for women and healthcare utilization in general is the fact that if we can truly reduce the time in labor without increasing risks, that has huge implications for healthcare utilization, healthcare delivery, financial implications and patient satisfaction Absolutely. I think that's exactly what I was speaking to is the number of hours in labor that were saved Mm -hmm. potentially when you look at modifying your management of induction of labor. And so this is very helpful evidence that I think will be cited very highly and utilized in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much for presenting and congratulations on your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we are joined by Sarah Ray Easter, who is from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who is presenting her work entitled Prior Term Birth Protects Against Preterm Birth of Twins. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. So tell me a little bit about what sparked your interest in investigating prematurity surrounding twins. Absolutely. I think that you don't have to tell a group of obstetricians that if you could have a patient, you'd want her to be a multip with a good past OB history. That being said, as someone who sees a lot of twins in my clinic, I was interested to know if there truly is a protective effect from having a prior term birth from preterm birth of twins. As of now, we don't have a lot of great screening options for risks of preterm birth in twins, and there aren't a lot of great interventions. So to be able to provide someone with information and improve their counseling in the clinic, I thought was very valuable and worth doing. So you have a very large cohort of twins that you studied. Tell me a little bit about where you obtained your data, how you proceeded with the analysis. Yes, sir. So our analysis is a secondary analysis of the MFMU trial looking at the utility of 17 progesterone in twins for prevention of preterm birth. That was a negative study, but it lent us a cohort of women who we had a lot of information about risk factors for preterm birth and seemed to be very suited for this secondary analysis. We looked at women based on their history of prior term birth or prior preterm birth and then compared them to nulliparous women in the cohort as the reference group. So what were your findings in this specific group? 
Interestingly, when you looked demographically comparing nulliparous women to those with a prior term birth, a lot of the sociodemographic factors that women with a prior term birth have are actually associated with preterm birth. So racial factors, rates of smoking, you know, high school education, things of that nature. So there was a lot of, we thought, potential for negative confounding. The rates of preterm birth, both spontaneous and indicated preterm birth, less than 37 weeks were high, as you might imagine in a cohort of twins. That being said, when you looked at early preterm birth, less than 34 weeks or even less than 28 weeks, having a prior term birth was highly protective both in unadjusted and even more so in adjusted analyses. So that's very helpful. It would suggest then that indeed the previous pregnancy history being favorable was a very strong predictor of better outcomes for these twin moms. Yes, sir. And I think clinically it's had a profound impact on my practice. When you have a patient who's come in before with a prior history of preterm birth, to say to them that you have about an 80% odds reduction of preterm birth, less than 28 weeks, is quite a profound effect. I think not only has it been clinically useful for counseling and trying to provide moms of twins with some reassurance about their anticipated obstetric outcomes, but I think it underscores the importance of considering past OB history and future research dedicated to twins in preterm birth. Very interesting work, and I'm sure it will be highly anticipated to read in the printed format. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.